Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hi everyone, before we get going with this podcast, we'd really like to highlight an important annual flash survey from Radiotherapy UK charity that will open from 29th August till 12th September 2023. This is your opportunity as a member of the Radiotherapy workforce to share your experiences of what is happening on the ground. So last year, over 10% of the entire Radiotherapy workforce responded from all disciplines and the key findings received national coverage from BBC Newsnight, national papers and in Parliament. A few of their key findings from last year included 84% of respondents said that they do not have the workforce in place to meet current patient need. Eight in ten respondents felt that the current environment had caused them or a colleague to consider leaving. Over one third said that they didn't have the appropriate IT and technology infrastructure to support the delivery of the most up-to-date techniques. So please do take part, have your say, have your voice heard and help raise awareness of the crucial need to invest and improve radiotherapy services in the UK. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 104. My name's Joe McMara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Sam Worcester, who was discussing his role as a training consultant therapeutic radiographer in brachytherapy. If you haven't had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest today, Helen Estelle, who will be discussing her role as a consultant diagnostic radiographer in MRI. Welcome, Helen. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. So really excited to have a diagnostic radiographer on the podcast, but even more so, one in MRI. Um, you're, you're a niche little group of people, aren't you, working we're, in MRI? We're very special, yes. <laughs> we're usually buried somewhere in the depths of the hospital and nobody ever knows who we are or where we are. We feel your pain as therapeutic radiographers. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Helen, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your career and, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, so I'm a, a consultant diagnostic radiographer in MRI at um, the University Hospitals of Leicester. I qualified a very long time ago. I've given up telling people when because they go, oh, I wasn't born then. It makes you feel very old. So I started working MRI um, when we had the first MRI scanner in Leicestershire in the early 90s, so a long time ago. 
Um, and I love MRI. I had the opportunity to work there and the images are fantastic and I've just loved it ever since. And I actually started reporting MRI scans in 2007, so I got my postgrad certificate. Um, then I went on and did the masters, which I think it was about 2014 that I got that. So I now report brain and spine MRI with a sort of a fairly limited scope of practice, so not all brains and spines, but um, a lot of MS, headaches, um, all the degenerate spines, that sort of thing. They all come to me, IEMs, that sort of thing. Um, there's not actually many MR reporting radiographers in the UK, so I did a survey about four years ago, and there was only perhaps 58 to 60 of us nationally, so we're well behind the other modalities. So diagnostic radiographers um, can train to report images if they're, you know, if they've got the support of everybody. But MRs well behind uh, modalities like ultrasound and plain film. But we're very lucky in Leicester. I'm actually one of five consultant diagnostic radiographers, and we also have two therapy consultant radiographers as well. So I became a consultant in 2019. Um, and the role is really well defined, so we're, we're very lucky. Health Education England and the College of Radiographers um, have uh, well-defined roles. So we have four core pillars of practice, they're called. So we have to be clinical experts in a specific area. Mine's MRI, obviously. We have to have leadership, um, education and research as part of our role. So with my role currently, I've had huge opportunities and I've done things nationally and internationally that I'd have never had uh, the opportunity to do in another career. So, for example, um, I was part of the working group recently that published the National Call Requiner Guidelines. I do a lot of postgrad and undergrad teaching. I've spoken in Sydney and Dubai recently. So, I mean, really amazingly lucky um, to do the things that I'm doing. Why did you pick healthcare? <laughs> well, it sounds really sad, doesn't it? But when um, when I was at school, we did one of those stupid questionnaires that you do to see where you want to do and they told me I should be a prison officer <laughs> and I was like I am the scarediest person around if somebody said I'm not doing that I'd be going oh okay so a prison officer was clearly not the career choice that I wanted to do and my mum um bless her I said I just want to and it seems really sad but I wanted to do something with people and help people I wasn't clever enough to be a doctor definitely didn't want to be a nurse um, and so my mum got a book and I wanted to do speech therapy originally and then she just stuck a pin in a page, saw a radiographer and I read it. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> and I've never regretted it. I've loved being a radiographer, a diagnostic radiographer. I think saying not clever enough is not fair. You're operating hundreds of thousand pounds worth of machinery. Yeah, well, it was, it was exam grades, wasn't it, really? That was the... That was the thing I, I would argue that what you're doing now is probably as much, if not more, than a specialist registrar at times. Yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, what is it about MRI that you love doing? Because I have to say, even as a therapeutic radiographer, when I'm teaching MRI, I get very excited. Just the quality of the imaging it's, is pretty is. special, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's the fact that you can look at anywhere in the body. I mean, it's not great for everything at all. You know, if, if your patient's got an acute stroke, they need a CT. If they've broken a leg, they need an X-ray. You know, if they've got gallstones, they need a, an ultrasound. So it's not for everything. MRI isn't the be-all and end-all. But for, 
for the things that it's useful for. We can look at one millimeter nerves, we can look at blood flow, we can look at you know, um, the anatomy and the physiology and the detail is just incredible. And I know I'm biased, but I just, I just think it's amazing. I just find it fascinating. Helen, what is um, MRI? <laughs> so um, MRI is magnetic resonance imaging and it's a really complex process and you could ask a physicist and be there for weeks. So I'll give you the 30 second radiographer version, which is the radiographer version I teach physics when I do MR physics. Um, so very basically, MRI is a massive magnet. So most clinical scanners, they're called one and a half T or three T, so Tesla, and that's just a, a measure of the magnetic field strength. And it doesn't mean anything to anybody when you say one and a half and three T. But if you think about those big magnets that lift cars to crush them, they're usually about one T. So one Tesla. So a clinical MR scanner is usually much more powerful than those big car magnets. So we're talking a big magnet. And what it does is when you go into the um, magnet itself, it works on your hydrogen protons in your body. So they act as little bar magnets, believe it or not. And when you lie in the magnet, your hydrogen protons line up north to south or south to north. And you don't feel this, obviously, and there's no effect. It's not dangerous or anything like that. And then what we do, once they're lined up, we put a radio frequency pulse in and that knocks the proton out of alignment and it's sort of spinning and doing other things as well. And then we switch that radio frequency pulse off and the hydrogen proton goes back into an alignment, spinning as well. And that um, effort of going knocking off and coming back again gives off a bit of energy. And it's that energy that we pick up that's the signal that's used to produce the image. And then there's other radio frequency pulses that we can spatially encode so that if you're scanning your head, the bit of energy from the hydrogen proton in your eye isn't stuck in your ear on the picture. So there's all sorts of, and then there's lots of black magic and s smoke and mirrors and all sorts of other stuff to get the actual picture. But that's ba very basically how it works. And then different tissues give off different signal. So that's why you get the, the differences in between fat and muscle, for example. And then there's lots of different sequences that we use. So you might have a, a T1 weighting and T2 weighting and that sort of thing. Um, and that just means that we can look at an image and go, okay, that's fluid or that's blood or that's fat. Um, and then we might use contrast as well to, to discern other things. So that's the 30 second radiographer version <laughs> of what MRI is. I mean, when patients, any patients that are listening, when they look at their own MRI scan, so the, the T1, T2 or diffusion weighted, what specifically, you know, in layman's terms, would they be looking at, and why would they differ in between their segments? Without, so, sorry, I'm obviously getting my nerd on, and I'm really interested. No, no, no. That's that's, <laughs> that's it's it's a good question. So it is quite it's quite difficult because different things show up differently. So if you're looking at T1 and T2 in the spine, for example, then um, you might be looking for degenerative change and or um, inflammatory changes and they'll look different on T1 and T2 and then diffusion weighted scans um, which works on the amount of how how the water molecules are moving within that area of the body in a stroke for example you get restricted diffusion and for uh, certain other conditions you get restricted diffusion so it's bright on a DWI scan so that will indicate that it's that pathology rather than another pathology and there's very few things that are 100% so you you know 
some things you can't say, well, it's definitely that, but it's more likely to be that. But there are a few things that you can say, okay, well, it's definitely that because it's looking like that on T1, it's looking like that on T2, and it's looking like that on all the other sequences that we do. And that's why when you have your scan, there's, there's lots of different noises going on. Helen, I always used to remember it by T1 is one syllable, so therefore fat, and then T2, two syllables, and therefore water. So that was like a way that I always used to help differentiate between T1 and T2. Yeah, well, on the whole, <laughs> T2 and T1, fat is bright on T1 and T2, but fluid is dark on T1 and bright on T2. So I, when I was learning, I remembered it that... Um, fluid is brighter on T2 because it's brighter, so it looks brighter on the scan. And T2 is more than T1, so it's more signal. It's, it, people remember it different ways, but that's how I remembered it, that water was bright because it was more signal, so it was more than one. My students are renowned for me coming up with ways in which they can learn things. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. they sit in exams going through these weird kind of things like they're... Uh, their cell division and things and they'll come out with acronyms around tequila that is literally <laughs> from me <laughs> so Helen you mentioned a little bit around kind of making noise um I haven't had an MRI scan but I have worked um and gone through placements in MRI even from a postgraduate perspective looking at stereotactic um, you've never had surgery. an MRI never had an MRI hundreds really? yeah I think I've MRI. had so I was trying to count those in my head I've, I've had seven or eight in my lifetime so far no. and we practice on each other so do you? can <laughs> we come in like i've got a shoulder <laughs> problem sometimes we do need volunteers but there's an awful lot of incidental findings so sometimes it's really best not to <laughs> <laughs> not only that i always hate looking at mri scans when you're like you see a really tiny little skinny woman inside all her extra vascular fat yeah, yeah. <laughs> so helen you mentioned a little bit of um of specifically the noise and I'm thinking from a patient's perspective what is it like going for an MRI what is it that patients may need to consider um when they kind of first attend their ever appointment because yeah. there's quite a lot isn't there that diagnostic radiographers have to go through yeah there is I mean it can be really daunting and it's either fear of the unknown or they've listened to a friend who said my cousin's dog's auntie really hated it um, and it was horrible and I'd never do it so first thing is don't listen to the friend because most patients that I've scanned will go oh that wasn't anywhere near as bad as I thought it was because somebody down the road said it was the worst experience of their life so you know it's it's never as bad as you think my husband loves them by the way he thinks it's a good excuse to have a nap for 30 minutes so you know each their own um, but communication is the key. So when they attend for their scan, um, we'll go through a safety questionnaire, and you might have received that before the scan as well, hopefully. And it's really important if you do feel um, have the questionnaire before the scan, make sure that you go through it all, and if you've answered yes to any of the questions, um, so you've got um, implants or you've had recent surgery, make sure you contact your MRI scan um, unit. Because the um, scanner is a big magnet, then some implants that you have um, are either not safe to have the scan or there's certain conditions we have to um, comply with to be able to scan you. And we can't do that, work out that information usually when you turn up on the day. So it's best to inform us beforehand that you've got implants in 
so that we can work out how it's best to scan you um, before you actually turn up on the day and have a wasted journey for yourself. Um, but when you turn up, we'll go through that safety questionnaire with you. And if you've got any questions, feel free to ask them. We'll go through the process as well to try and reassure you. You'll be asked probably to change or at least take all your metal off because obviously you don't want to go into the magnet with uh, lots of metal on. And for some scans, you might need an injection. So we'll give you, um, we might put a Venflon in your arm. Um, a cannula in your arm. But once you're all checked out and your safety questionnaire has gone on, um, you go into the scanner, you lie on the table. They're not comfortable. <laughs> They're not designed for sleep, but you know, you, you do have to lie there nice and still. So it's important to get yourself comfy. And whatever we're scanning um, has to be in the center of the bore of the magnet. So the magnets now are usually about 60 or 70 centimetres wide and they're shorter than your average person. So one part of you is usually sticking out of the scanner. They're open at both ends. They're not enclosed in. There's plenty of light and air. There's a fan in the bore as well. So you can have that on if you're a little bit claustrophobic. You might be offered an eye mask if you're claustrophobic or you can shut your eyes and think about something else. You might have music playing. There's lots of different things we can do if you're concerned. Um, the bit that we're scanning usually has another bit of equipment called a coil over the top, and this means we get prettier pictures, so we do need that bit of equipment. And um, we'll give you a buzzer as well. We'll give you some headphones or earplugs for the noise, and we'll give you a buzzer. Because the scan is so noisy, we can't hear you if you if you want to tell us something or you're, or you're a bit concerned or, or you have any questions when we're doing the scan. So we give you the buzzer and you can squeeze that and then we'll stop the scan and, and ask if you're all right. But we'll check with you as well during the scan. You're not just sort of shoved in there. Most scans take about anything between 20 and 40 minutes. And during that 20 and 40 minutes, there'll be lots of different scans. So there might be um, a scan for about 30 seconds and then another four or five scans of about three or five minutes each. And during that three or five minutes, it's really, really important that you lie still. So when you get on the table, make sure that you're comfortable, that you've got a pad under your knees if you need one or pads under your elbows or whatever to make you comfy. Because ML is really sensitive to movement and even breathing movement. Um, can cause artifacts on the pictures and it makes them undiagnostic. So it's really, really important that you lie in it nice and still. And we might get you to hold your breath for some scans, but not the four minute ones. Obviously, that's not a good idea. So those scans are usually about 20 seconds long. Um, you don't get the results. That's the other thing to remember. You don't get the results on the day of the scan because we take hundreds and hundreds of pictures and either a radiologist who's a specialist doctor in imaging or a reporting radiographer like myself will have to review all the images and make a report and diagnose if there's any issues there. And then that report goes to the referrer, the person who sent for you for the scan in the first place. And the timing for that can be hugely variable, but you don't get the results on the day. Um, I think the main thing is, is you know, don't worry. If you've got concerns, you can always ring up beforehand and speak to one of the staff um, and, you know, get your questions answered. It might be that you, you we've arranged a bit before for patients to come and visit so they can have a look at the scanner and nip in and have a quick see what it's like between patients. Um, so we'll do whatever we can to, you know, make it as it's never an enjoyable experience unless you like my husband and just want half an hour's snap. But, you know, it's, um, we'll do everything we can to make it as relaxing as possible. Helen, can I ask you a difficult question? <laughs> you can. 
<laughs> Obviously, in therapeutics, we know our patients have certain pathologies, and that's what we're treating them for. And we do imaging as well. But in the diagnostic world, if you're doing an X-ray, MRI, you obviously can see what comes up on the screen first. Yeah. Now, as you said, you don't. We don't tell our patients what what's happening and stuff. But how do you, or how have you find found in your experience that if you have seen something on the scan, going back in the room and speaking to the patient? Yeah, it's it's difficult. We all know it's it's difficult. The vast majority of scans, they're normal or it's just you know mild degenerative changes that are causing the patient problem. Very few patients have a serious um, pathology on there, but of course it does happen, unfortunately. And it is really difficult because you've got to put your game face back on, knowing what you've seen on the scan, and go back in there. But you, we're not quali- or most radiographers, diagnostic radiographers, are not qualified to give that information. And then, you know, if we did give the information, the patient would obviously have questions to ask and we wouldn't be able to answer those questions necessarily either. So we, we can't give the results. And it is very difficult to, to smile and go back in. But that's part of what being a, a diagnostic radiographer and a therapeutic radiographer is about. It's that professionalism um, and just treating all your patients as you would want to be treated regardless. For any kind of students or junior people who are listening... What sort of techniques do you use to cope with it afterwards then? Obviously, you can have a smiley face, but you know that something's going wrong. How do you cope with it and continue with the rest of your shift and not take it home? It's very difficult, but um, there's huge amounts of support out there. I mean, personally, I'm very good. I'm a a compartmentalist, so I will compartmentalise. And usually I can... I used to live an hour's drive away from work. So by the time I'd driven home, I'd got it all out of my system on the M1. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's however you cope. But there's talking to colleagues, talking to the other staff. And I know, you know, we shouldn't talk about patients, but sometimes you just need to talk about what you've seen to be able to, to get it off your chest. And it's all done within the, the privacy of the, of the department, or the, you know, so nobody else can hear what's going on. But it is about talking to your colleagues talking to your line manager there's plenty of support if it really does get um too much for for staff there's amica and that sort of thing um and other counseling services available but for the most part i think it comes with experience and you get it doesn't get easier but you get you get quicker at coping with with the the more difficult um things that you see i mean obviously diagnostic radiographers we work in a and e and and theaters um, and so we've seen an awful lot of, of trauma and, and pretty nasty things. Um, but you, unfortunately, you do get used to it. It's part of the part of your working day. Helen, we um, have a massive supporter um, for Radchat in a patient called Sarah Jane um, Maya. She um, she has um, gynaecological cancer and is living with with stage four disease and she had a really bad MRI experience um she basically thought she was going for an MRI and then unfortunately she showed up and and realized that actually what they were doing was seeing whether she would fit into the MRI scanner how how do you think in terms of kind of supporting patients um who are defined I don't like the term BMI but it's what we use within the medical field but how could we maybe better support patients who maybe aren't eligible for MRI? 
it, that, that it's difficult. Most um, NHS scanners are, are the cylindrical bore scanners, so they're 70 centimetres wide is the, is the maximum. Now, a lot of it is patient tolerance, so you might be a, um, relatively slim but can't tolerate the feeling of compression, or it might be that you've got a much larger BMI, but you manage to fit in, um, albeit tightly, but you, you can tolerate it, so that's not a problem. For those patients that physically can't manage, and it's not just those with a large BMI, we have the same with, with you know, large mus um, rugby players, for example, that have got really large shoulders, and they ca we can't necessarily fit them in for their scanner. So there are scanners available, open scanners. Um, they're usually, so Birmingham Upright Centre, for example, accepts NHS referrers. Referrals, so um, referrers can refer to open scanners. They are available. Um, it is difficult, and I've been asked to go and view a patient on ITU, for example, to see if I thought they'd be able to fit in because they were of a higher BMI. Um, we will always give it a go, and and it it's perhaps not the best experience for the patient to know that they're going to be see if they can fit in, but we would rather them try and see if they can fit in so we can get a diagnostic scan than go, oh no, we're not even going to attempt, because it does it does vary with patient tolerance. It's difficult, and I don't think I can probably give a <laughs> very satisfactory answer apart from the fact that the radiographer should be just very sympathetic about. Um, trying to fit those patients in yeah it's the care and support isn't it that you it can is. still offer it's, it is very difficult but it shouldn't be that we're prejudiced or biased because of that because obviously there's lots of different reasons why patients might be of a large BMI yeah and obviously I would say as well that there are patients that aren't eligible for MRI yes um can you talk us a little through a little bit through kind of eligibility because I certainly know um, through friends and family that you kind of anticipate that because of what you think their pathology could be that maybe MRI is the way to go and yeah. yet actually they've been referred for CT. Yeah. Why might that be? So it might be that their um, pathology is seen better on CT. It might be that they've got a higher risk of MR so the CT will be as diagnostic. Or it might be that they can't have MR because of either um, the conditions of the implant that they have or that it might be that their, the conditions of their implant can't be matched with the scanners at that hospital site. So, for example, um, cochlear implants, they are very conditional for MRI. And when I say something's conditional, it means that we can only scan them within certain conditions and so we have to do different things on the scanner um, or the scanner has to have very specific equipment or abilities to do that. And so, for example, patients with a cochlear implant, we can't scan in Leicester because we can't meet the criteria. So we usually send those. I think it's Birmingham can do those. Um, there's other uh, implants. So, for example, if you've got um, vagal nerve stimulator, we can scan if you require a head scan. But if you need a knee scan, we can't scan because the equipment doesn't fulfill the knee scan the coil is the wrong type of coil to be able to um, go for you to have your vagal nerve stimulator to go into the scanner so there's different conditions but hopefully for anything like that that's why we need to know about implants beforehand so that we can do the checks um, and make sure that we can or can't scan you and if we can't scan you then we will inform the referrer 
or sometimes we'll ring the patient and discuss it with them as well so that they're aware of the reasons why. It should never be that somebody doesn't know why they can't have an MRI scan. And if you're not sure, ring up and ask. Helen, why does the scanner have to be so narrow? Um, yeah, they, ha they are bigger. When I first started, I think it was a 50 centimetre bore. They were tiny. And the, there's some very high Tesla scanners now. There's seven Tesla and nine Tesla, which are mostly for research in neuro. And those bores are only about 20 centimetres um, wide, so they can only do heads, obviously. It's just to do with the gradient coils and the technology around what sort of kit and the signal that you um, need. Because obviously you're working on hydrogen protons, which are really, really small. <laughs> They're not things that you can see. Um, so it's, it's about the technology and the, and the gradient coils. They are getting bigger. And as I say, we've got um, open scanners now, which have a re they're of a lower Tesla, so they might be 0.2 Tesla or 0.5 Tesla, so that they're lower field magnets usually. But things are improving year on year. There's massive developments. Do you think with the science there would ever be, I don't know, 10, 15, 100 years down the line where you could have an open bore but still have the same Tesla like yeah, resolution? I'm sure there will be. It's, it's coming on. I mean, it will be slowly in some respects. But, um, yeah, I mean, even since I've been doing MR, which is 30 years, um, the changes are, are phenomenal. So another 30, 50 years, yeah, I'm sure there will be. They'll, scientists are very clever. <laughs> they can get around anything usually, given time and money. <laughs> Obviously, we've talked about adults. For paediatrics, is it the same scanner? Is it slightly different? No, it's exactly the same. Um, so for babies and neonates obviously it's the movement issue for for, for them because obviously you're trying to you can't get a baby to lie still for 20 minutes um, but we do feed and wrap so they feed them and wrap them and they'll sleep through the scan we'll put ear defenders on fingers crossed um, if they're under two they can have different types of sedation um, over twos and up to about five or seven they'll have to have a general anaesthetic because they can't lie still for that long but I have scanned for a four-year-old that managed to lie still for their scan without a general anaesthetic so it is really child child dependent um yeah but it's movement mainly for children that's the issue they don't Do tend to be claustrophobic they're they're scared of the noise and obviously the big big scanner usually scares them so you play a game with them you say you know come and have a you know look, lie on the table it's like a rocket ship and it makes a loud noise and it's great and you wear these magic headphones and you know there's all sorts of things you can you can do and, and play and some sites have play therapists who are fantastic the good old play therapist honestly yeah, in another life, great. i'd love to have done that job i think <laughs> what do you do I yeah, no not for day. me <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you have to play with children <laughs> So, Helen, um, it is reported widely of MRI waiting lists and waiting times. How do you cope kind of day to day? And I know that we've had diagnostic radiographers um, on the podcast previously who've talked about kind of patients missing appointments. And that is a reason for sometimes for very high waiting lists in some areas because of that non-attendance. Yeah, I mean, I think the national average for DNAs, which are, did not arrive, um, is about four or five percent. Um, and when you're scanning, oh, I think we scan about 50, 60 patients a day. 
well, depending on how many scanners you've got, obviously. That's, you know, that's a significant, and over a year, these, those numbers add up. So that does, it does add to the waiting list. So it is really important if you're not planning on attending because you've had a scan already or you've changed your mind or your clinical symptoms have changed that you do inform the, the MRI unit so they can try and rebook a patient. Even if it's short notice, they might be able to get an inpatient down because obviously we have inpatients that are waiting for MRI scans as well that they you know that really poorly and need to have scans um, but yeah the waiting lists and obviously the pandemic really really um, affected waiting lists for diagnostic imaging particularly um, because we we were dealing with the COVID patients and we had to reduce the number of patients we were scanning due to infection prevention issues and um, yeah it's it's taken a long time to recover from that but we're, we're getting there waiting lists have come down hugely now thank goodness but there's still there's still more patients than there are scanners and radiographers i suppose on that what is your view on diagnostic hubs um yeah if it gives more access to patients and more facilities great I'll stop there. <laughs> who's gonna Who's gonna do it though? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. You know, we've that we've was got a very political. It was answer. Very, very it well was. Yeah, thank you. I suppose I, you. I'll say what you probably can't, but there's not enough radiographers to stock them. No, you can no, spend really all the money you want on the brand new fancy kit, but there's no one going to be yeah. there. It's like the London Nightingale hospitals. Yeah, sorry, exactly. the Nightingale. No, hospitals. We had yeah, we had Nightingale um, as well. So it was just there's not enough staff. There's a I think it's a fifteen percent. Um, vacancy rate in diagnostic radiographers nationally um, they need to train more I mean Leicester we're, we're actually starting a degree course in September with, with Leicester University so we're you know training going to be training a huge tranche more another 30 a year but that's it's it's still not enough and it's the same for therapy radiographers as well there's there's just not enough of us around um, it's a shame because it's a fantastic career but the universities are full so it's the placement there's not enough space in the universities and that usually comes down to either funding or clinical placements there's not enough clinical placements because obviously they have to have clinical placements whilst they're training to actually do the job um, so it's a clinical placement issue as well and Helen how do you feel about kind of the exposure that maybe students get to various disciplines do you feel like as a, a student when you were training that you knew straight away what discipline you wanted to go into? Yeah, well, when I trained, it was the DCR. It wasn't a degree. Um, we were we had a school of radiography, which is based in the hospital. So we did we were radiographers. We were doing the job as we were training, whereas now it's very university-based. Um, I didn't have any doubts about what I wanted to do. I, I loved it, obviously. <laughs> there were some days when I just really was not happy but that's all part of the process so I've not had any doubts but we do have a you know fairly reasonable attrition rate I think as well so for students that go into the course and then find out that it isn't what they want so I think the main thing is if you're thinking about doing radiography is visit departments speak to radiographers whether it's diagnostic or therapy um, you know look at both if you're unsure visit ask lots of questions, you know, Google, there's loads of things out on Google about, you know, what we do, 
um, to make sure that if you're going into it, the course and you're doing the degree, it is really what you want to do because there's very little point in doing a year, two years or three years and then deciding that's not the career that you want to do after all. So do your research beforehand and don't doubt, it's amazing. We're fab. From the, the reporting side of things, Helen, can you just talk us through what your day-to-day -day would be like? So um, I do um, a three-hour reporting session each morning um, and I'll, I'll just pick the longest waiters off the list that's within my scope of practice and report those. Um, and then for the rest of the day, it's the other bits and pieces that are involved. So it'll be doing things like this um, or um, research. Um, I'm writing a couple of papers at the moment for publication, hopefully. Um, planning lectures and talks that I'll be doing in the future. Um, and then answering emails, dealing with patient queries, safety issues, all those other bits and pieces that, that come along. So that's my average day. I quite often do the end of the day and I think, if somebody said to me, what have I done today? I'd go, um... <laughs> I'm sure you've done the hours go. <laughs> I know. Well, it is, isn't it? You do. You do. You're just really busy, and then at the end of the day, you think, "Oh, what, what have I? Okay, yeah, no, I've achieved that. I've achieved that. Yeah, it's great." And obviously, it, reporting um, MRs just, yeah, makes the day because I've, I've obviously helped that patient pathway for that number of patients, and as I say, usually it's it's negative, so the results will be good for the patient. What What is your scope of practice? And how long does so, it roughly take? I know it's patient dependent, but how long does it normally take yeah, to report so something? Rep um, because an MR scan obviously is hundreds and hundreds of images and there's lots of different sequences to look through. And then you've got to look through previous imaging as well, if they've had that to compare. So on average, if I'm looking at a head, it might take 15, 20 minutes. If I'm looking at a whole spine, it might take an hour to report. So these aren't quick turnaround um, scans to do um, sort of the usual thing is if it takes that amount of time to scan it it'll take roughly that amount of time to to report it I'm not the quickest reporter in the world so there are other reporters that will report quicker but that's about the average um, and I think the Royal College radiologists say sort of a one body part about 20 minutes for MRI so they're not it's not quick Helen what advice would you give to anyone who wanted to to develop their scope of practice and go into reporting? Show an interest. Um, anybody that reports, whether it's a radiographer or a radiologist, you know, if somebody asks you questions and shows an interest, then you think, oh, okay, they, they care, they're, they're wanting to learn more. Um, and when I'm sort of speaking about it to radiographers, we've always got a PC next to the scanner. Um, so if you're reading patients' clinical information and you don't understand a word, or then go and Google it. Use Dr. Google. Look things up. If you find an interesting case, keep that reference number and then look at the report afterwards so that you know you're increasing your clinical knowledge um, about what the image interpretation was. So you see something and then you read the report, you go, oh, that's what that is. And then next time you look at it, you go, oh, that's one of those. Um, and so just just keep asking questions and keep looking and, and, and refer back to scans that you've done that were interesting. Um, sit in on a reporting session if you can. Certainly from a radiographer point of view, I'm usually by myself. I'd quite like somebody to come and sit with me and talk to me. <laughs>
And do you find, Helen, that um, it can be quite department dependent on how much support you get from the radiology yes. team as a whole yeah. as to how kind of radiographers can advance their practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's a couple of things, really. Um, not all radiographers want to report and not all radiographers should report. Um, it is a fairly niche bit and there's very few of us that, that certainly for MR, obviously very, very few of us, a bit like hen's teeth. Um, not all radiologists will support radiographers reporting. The vast majority do. Um, but even with support, they've got to be allowed time in their job plan to help train. Um, and then you've got to backfill the radiographer. So there's, there's um, financial implications as well. So you've got to have a lot of management support as well for the role. And obviously it takes time. You, don't, you know, it's not going to be a couple of weeks and then you're able to report so for most of us you do a year's postgrad diploma um, certificate or a diploma or whatever and then you'll have a perceptorship period before you're signed off because you're taking obviously a very strong clinical responsibility you're diagnosing um, what the patient's problem may or may not be and we are autonomous, autonomous practitioners in the fact that if I make a mistake it'll be me in the coroner's court um, it's not the radiologist that would trained me or anything like that. So it's it's my um, autonomous practice. So we are responsible for our own work. Um, so there's lots of governance issues that need to be sorted out as well beforehand. So you need all that documentation in place. So there's, there's lots of different factors. Um, and it's not just about the radiologist support. But without the radiologist support, you're a, a, a no-starter. Helen, I've got another difficult question that you might not want to answer. Okay. Um, so radiologists are some of the highest earners within the NHS because they get to yes. do a lot of extra private work. Do you get the they opportunity do. to do this as well? No. Um, I wouldn't anyway. Um, and not because I'm against private practice, but I prefer to work where I've got that support mechanism um, available. If I've got a query or there's something I'm not sure about, I will always ask um, because I... I I'm very conscious of my, the fact that I don't have a medical education as such, so that's why radiographers usually have a limited scope of practice. So within my scope, I'm an expert and I can provide a report that's equivalent to a radiologist, but it is only within that scope of practice. Um, and I think for private practice, it's, it's not something I'd be comfortable with personally. There are, I, I do know there are radiographers out there doing, um, working for private companies doing reporting. Um, so it, 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 is a, it is there. But that, that can be something that might be a bit of a blocker for some. And obviously you, you talked about research and things like that. What's next for you? Um, so there's a couple of research projects that are ongoing at the moment, um, which I'm just, it's mostly uh, data stuff that I do for those. As I say, I'm writing a couple of papers that I'm hoping to go to publication. Fingers crossed, I'm working towards a PhD, but I may chicken out of that one. Um, and then I've got several other um, teaching projects and speaking projects um, coming up that I've got to prep for as well. So, yeah, busy. Don't chicken out, Helen. Get the no, I'm, if I can do it, I will. <laughs> I will do it if I can. There's not many of us that uh, radiographers that are PhDs, are they? Therapy or diagnostic. So we need more of us. 
absolutely absolutely so Helen we're, we've we come into the end of the podcast and we always ask for top tips you've given some great ones as we've got kind of gone through the podcast episode but are there any kind of lasting lasting ways in which you want the audience to kind of think of MRI yeah so um, if you're a patient don't be scared of it um, it's if you can manage to get through it it's it's what's needed to make your diagnosis quicker and easier um, if you've got worries speak to the department you know ring up and communicate that you've you've got concerns if you think you're really claustrophobic then speak to your gp because some gps will um, give you some uh, an oral sedation tablet just to take prior to the mri and even though you don't feel any different it's usually enough to to get you through the scan if you are claustrophobic if you're a student thinking about doing diagnostic or therapeutic radiography find out about it beforehand you know speak to ring up the department, ask to speak to somebody. If you can visit, do that. Um, and if you're other healthcare professionals, there's not just doctors and nurses out there. We are um, quite a large group of, of staff and we're brilliant. So speak to us. If you want to visit an MR scanner, ring up and ask. If you want to know more, we'll show you our scissor trick, which is a pair of scissors on a string and sucked into the magnet just to show how powerful it is. That usually shocks people. But come down and visit us. Um, find out some more about us we're usually buried somewhere a bit like therapy radiographers but we're quite friendly a huge thank you again to our guest Helen Estal. thank you all for listening to Rad Chat your hosts today have been Numan Jolka Anderson and Jay McNamara if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with this podcast episode. 